0: guys, welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. It's episode 8 of series 2. I can't believe we're 8 episodes in already. It's just gone incredibly quickly. <laughs> so I'm Alice, I'm usually the producer, but yeah, I'm on the mic today and I'm joined by Sophos expert Ben Jones. Hello. Paul Ducklin. Hello, folks. And Mark Stockley is also not here today, so in his place we have Peter McKenzie. Yay. Hello. Peter, have you ever been on the podcast before? No, first time. First time, welcome along. Thank you. Um, so can you just give us a brief overview for people who don't know your, what you do at Sophos?
1: Yes, uh, I've been at Sophos a very long time now, uh, part of the support department, and I deal with the malware escalation, so critical incidents, sort of the your network's on fire type situations.
0: Okay, cool. So you're going to be talking about the current trends in targeted ransomware today. Can you just start with what is targeted ransomware?
1: Yeah, targeted ransomware, I mean, you've got sort of two broad categories of ransomware nowadays. You may think of it as a traditional ransomware, which is the stuff we saw a few years ago, um, where it's coming in over spam emails, and it's sort of classed as fire and forget the attackers don't really have any control over the attack the user has to receive the email they have to click on something it has to download something it has to launch it has to encrypt your data and then you have to pay the ransom that's very different to targeted ransomware where the attackers are on your network maybe they've RDP'd in or they've found some other method of getting in from a previous malware attack and they're controlling what happens. If something gets blocked, they adapt and they find a different way round and they will basically keep trying until they succeed.
2: Mm. Okay. So,
1: Peter, when just the the idea of targeted, I think a lot of people
2: get the idea. Oh, it means that they picked a company because of the industry sector they are in, or because people don't like them, because they think they're polluting the environment, whatever it is, and therefore they're going after them as a target. But there's nobody can stand down from Red Alert on that those grounds right? No, alone, we don't. Right? We
1: don't mean targeted in that sense. Um, yeah, this isn't. Um, you're not going to be targeted by these guys because you're a uh, power station polluting the atmosphere or anything like that, we mean targeted in that they know who you are when they're on your network. You know, they can see what domain you've got, they can look at your website. They didn't get up in the morning saying, I want to hit this company. They just happen to have access to you and now they're doing a bit of reconnaissance
2: so it's almost as though they've got a list of twenty companies that they already know they've got passwords for, they already know they can break into, and they'll do number one on the list, and then they'll do number two and number three and so on. So whoever's next is next. Yep. And the, it's kind of so the big difference is it do they do they sort of do one company, then the next, then the next, so that therefore they can they can come in with a bigger bang, as it were? Is that the idea?
1: Well there's sort of Different types of targeted ransomware as well. We're going to talk about those today. So you've got... The first one I want to talk about is this sort of smaller scale attacks where we see companies typically under 50 users, so very small companies, where they've got... And I, I know this has been talked about uh, before on these podcasts. They have RDP open to the world. <laughs> have we talked about oh, that before? Oh, I don't know. If only we ben had some Tom literature, yeah, I, some yeah, research if only paper, something to read on that. Um, so yes, yeah, so um, a lot of small companies, especially ones that outsource their IT, they quite often need to have RDP, or at least they believe they need to have RDP open, um, to allow the service provider. Access to their network. And unfortunately, this um, these sort of open ports can be very easily found on sites like Shodan and Census, uh, which are like Google for bad guys, really. And um, <laughs> once you find them, I mean, it's just a matter of brute forcing. And as that your paper um, went to it about, that uh, is very easy to do, very quick to do quite often.
3: Software.com forward slash RDP, just A your obligatory injection there. When you of fired the up, up your paper. honeypots to look for the attacks from
2: presumably from people like this who are going hey who's out there let's make the list of the next 20 to hit Mm -hmm. the first attack came within it what was it just over a minute one minute
3: 24 seconds in the paris data center
2: 84 seconds and bingo after after some random server just came on the air with your first attempt for someone to go i wonder if Exactly. They, this could be the but, real deal.
1: And in, in wow, almost as shocking. Yes, one minute twenty-four, but you could say maybe that was a one-off. But I think wasn't the longest time it took for any one of yours to get it. Was about eight hours. It was less than eight. It, a was, day it or something, was just right?
3: over twelve hours. 12 yeah. So, 12 hours. so they were all found within the first twenty-four hours. And I think the, the key message, the key takeaway from that, is that as soon as you publish anything out to the outside, expose it to the outside world, accessible to the public. It will be found, and it will be yeah. a target. Yeah, and the big so- deal in your research is it was only by
2: IP number, wasn't it? It wasn't like you said, I'm. You didn't spend a while advertising. Oh, I have a company, and the name is well known, and this is what it is. Come and find me. There's no DNS.
3: It was basically you just happened to be there. <laughs> And somebody noticed you. So we just span up 10 EC2 instances in AWS. So in AWS, you get an automatically generated AWS DNS hostname to resolve to public facing. Um, whether they found it via the DNS name or the IP address, we don't know 100%. Um, but either way, they found it. Yeah. They found all the servers within 24 hours. And, and
1: what we see is once they get in, um, they'll use a variety of tools to sort of uh, either steal admin passwords or to elevate their privilege to domain admin. And they'll use um, freely available tools to try and disable the AV if they can. And then they'll be quite happy to encrypt that one terminal services server. Maybe they'll move to one other server and encrypt that. But then they'll move on with their day. They'll charge a few thousand dollars or whatever the currency is, and uh, they'll be looking for the next victim.
2: And we So they've st- bumped up the ransom compared to the old school, you know, the yeah, crypto locker no
1: days. Yeah, so the you $300. Yeah, so the, the mass spammed out traditional ransomware where you have no idea who you're really targeting uh, or any control over it. Those, they're looking for a million victims and getting 1% back, whereas the more targeted, they're going, well, we're only hitting one organisation a day Therefore, we want the ransom demand to be enough to cover the costs for our day's work or, you know, something <laughs> along those lines, some be, costs. How
0: can you be sure that if you do pay the ransom that they will actually give you your data back?
1: Well, you can never be sure, but um, and there are plenty of examples where either you've got nothing back or they didn't actually encrypt your data, uh, data they just deleted it, uh, mm. or that the tool you get for decryption doesn't work very well. Um, but... There is also, they have their marketing to be concerned about as well. Their, their brand of a ransomware, they, they need victims to know that if they pay, they will get something back, otherwise people will stop paying.
2: Right. Mm. But That's
1: some sure. of these guys have like, basically support
2: lines, don't they? You can contact oh them anonymously yeah. on the web and say, okay, help me, I've got the
1: decryption tool, now what do I do? Yeah, many of them offer free technical, wow. not, not free, of course, because you paid the ransom. <laughs> but um, Yeah, they offer technical support, um, you know, live chats with them, that kind of thing.
2: And a lot of them also, just like in the old days, they have you can you can choose one or two files, uh, yeah. and they'll send them to them. So they don't know which mm. ones you're going to choose, and then they'll decrypt them if they think they're not important enough, and send them back as a kind of proof
1: mm. that they yeah. must have the key somehow. It's like
2: exactly. we'll
3: release two of the hostages to show we're willing to <laughs> exactly. negotiate here,
1: yeah. sort of thing. Dreadful, isn't yeah. it? And the other um, ransomware sort of category we we're going to talk about, or the second one of three, um, is the the other end of that spectrum, the large scale, uh, what we sort of refer to as enterprise attacks, where you've got examples like Ryuk ransomware or BitPaymer or Mega Cortex. These are the groups that are aiming to disable your entire company. They target every server they can, potentially every endpoint. What they want to do is cause mass chaos all at the same time. And they will launch this attack while you're asleep at night. And these are the type, type of target attacks where they've spent more time on your network getting ready. So they'd be there for, let's say, three days, maybe a week, maybe longer, doing the reconnaissance, mapping out your network, getting domain admin, working out how you do your backups. Uh, in many of the Riot attacks we've seen recently, which are pro- predominantly targeting America But we see Europe, we see, I saw one in India last week, uh, Canada, South America, they are all over the place. Um, We see them quite often, the attackers, because they are on your network, they're RDPing internally around your network. They will quite often delete your backups first. They'll simply go to your Linux backup servers and delete the files. We've seen them resetting virtual snapshots and then they launch their ransomware attack. And that's only after they've already tested the files they're going to use to see if they get past at least some of the layers of security you've got. And then, especially with RIAC, um, the ransom demands they're now asking for, uh, I mean, there was uh, it's over $5 million on some occasions now. I think $5.3 million um, is the highest I've heard for RIAC, but we're regularly seeing them in excess of $2 million. Um, and unfortunately, people have to pay. Uh, Some people say, well, if we don't pay, our business is is gone. It's it's pay or we go under. That's
2: crazy, isn't it? It, So it's almost like we started with what you might call consumer grade ransomware, roughly 500 bucks ago. Then we went to sort of business grade ransomware, which was 100 times as much 50 grand ago. And now we're at sort of industrial grade or carrier grade ransomware, where it's 100 times as much again. Now, do you think, Peter, that the, a, a lot of these attacks at the moment are happening in the US because cyber insurance is quite common there. And so the crooks figure, you know, well, there's actually, if we ask the average company for five million bucks, there's no chance they can get that much cash together. But if they've got cyber insurance, they might actually be able to
1: pay so he can squeeze them harder than ever. Yeah well that's a big question that's sort of being wondered at the moment really. I mean the one of the ones I saw in the press the other day was a school was demanded 5.3 million dollars for From a school. One school. I think it was a larger school system but still What school in the world Mm. has five point three million dollars available? So, five dollars thirty (laughs) maybe. And the attackers, the attackers know this. They're not, they're not idiots. They know what they're doing. So they know that it's quite likely the insurance firm is going to pay that ransom demand. And they may have dealt with that insurance firm before and known that last week they got four million out of them. So they they tried five million this week. Do they cut deals? That or are they one, hard-hearted? that one, that one um, <laughs> Sorry, you, can you say that so can crooks be soft-hearted? Don't So really know. some ransomware groups do negotiate uh RIAC is known for not doing that um the, in that instance, the um, victim offered them I think it was about four hundred thousand dollars, and they said no, pay up or we don't or care costs. or or, yeah. nothing. or nothing or nothing yeah, we' are already attacking the next victim and then so the the other new trend we're seeing first one I know of uh, at the beginning of this year where you've got, let's call them third parties, IT service providers, someone that you have outsourced part of your IT to. So the kind of organizations that offer to do patch management on your network or maybe deploy new software, these kind of services require them to have access to your network through an agent installed on your machine or something like that or RDP open, they provide that service to you. What we've seen recently is attackers possibly accidentally compromising those IT service providers and realising that through the software they've got installed on their network, they suddenly have access to another 10, 20, 100 networks and can very simply using that access and those tools deploy ransomware to 100 different networks all at the same time. This was one that was seen in Texas just a couple of weeks ago where 22 towns or cities in Texas of America um, were hit. And there's not a huge amount of details that have been made public, but what has been uh, indicates that it was an IT service provider and the access to those 22 towns that was sort of the responsible part of how the attackers gained access. So that's almost like the crooks have figured, you know what, if we want
2: to do credit card fraud, we can either defraud 100 separate companies by getting their company credit card or we can go after the payment provider mm-hmm. and do them all yeah. in one go.
1: Yeah. As I said, I mean, they may have just done it by accident. They, you know, this just happened to be the next company on their list that they were going to target and then suddenly they realised, okay, oh, wow, this is 100 times bigger than wow. we thought. Yeah, mm-hmm. so why not?
0: So what can people do to protect themselves against this?
1: Well, against any of these type of attacks, you've got to go back to the, the basics, Right. have layered security you know mm-hmm. things like our intercept x product with the crypto guard technology for you know never seen before ransomware um the other classics of two-factor authentication ask your it provider do they have two-factor authentication on the access to your network And obviously picking proper passwords and, um, well, I don't know how many times you guys have probably said this, but backups Mm off-site and offline. With these targeted type of attacks, you've got to remember that if your admins or your domain admins have access to your backups, then so do the attackers because those are the accounts they're compromising.
2: Yeah, because mm. when you go to your so, oh well, it's all right. I'll restore from my volume shadow copy. The crooks know that. That's long oh, those,
1: gone. Those gone. Every <laughs> ransomware gets rid of volume shadow copies now. But these people are, you know, they're manually identifying your backup servers and they're simply deleting everything. No malware. They're just deleting it. They've got the access to do it.
0: So it's interesting that a lot of these things come back to quite simple security practices when we look at the advice that you give people.
1: Yes, unfortunately, most of the Reich attacks we investigate, I'm picking on Reich just because uh, we are seeing a sort of increase in them at the moment. Um, in, I can't think of an example where the answer didn't come back to it was an unprotected machine in the network where the attackers sort of got their foothold. Um, Reich typically gets into a network, or the attackers behind Reich, um, through another bit of malware called TrickBot, which is a, a very nasty worm. So... That worm is doing the rounds on your network, concentrating on your unprotected machines. And then at some point, the Riot people go, right, we've earned enough from TrickBot. Let's see if we can get a ransom demand out of you. We've got access to your unprotected machines. We'll start with those. We'll see if we can get domain admin.
2: So I guess the other, the other key thing to bear in mind is if there's a warning sign, do not ignore it. Because what comes next may be worse than what you've had so far, exactly. like $5 million worse. Exactly. exactly.
0: Cool. Well, thank you, Peter. That's a very interesting topic. Thanks for covering that. Um, So we're going to move on to you, Ben, if that's okay. So I can see that Facebook has suffered another data leak. Can you tell us what happened?
3: exactly that so yeah facebook have suffered a data leak whereby 419 million user records were leaked as a result of a publicly accessible unprotected database
1: can we start tracking numbers for these leaks because i'm losing count yeah (laughs) no you i i did
2: a talk recently where i thought oh, i'll go and get the numbers and i looked up on have i been pwned how many breaches are in his database and those are just publicly known ones and i thought the number looked very similar to some other number I had in mind, and I went and looked online for current world population, which is close to 8 billion, and the number of breached records in Have I Been Pwned
3: exceeds the population of yeah. Yeah. the world. Wow. So
2: the answer is we don't need to count. We've got there already.
3: Somebody somewhere was waiting there with sort of yeah. party poppers and everything waiting for that to tip over. No, no, it did tip over. <laughs> yeah, this that's year. what I'm saying. Um, so the leak uh, this time around with Facebook was identified by Sanyam Jain, of research nonprofit the GDI Foundation, who located the public-facing unprotected database, which contained user details such as telephone numbers. Um, there were 490 million records, as I, as I mentioned, of which th- 133 million were of uh, personal information for U.S. users, 50 million were Vietnamese users, and then 18 million were U.K. users as well. Now, Ben, the, these
2: this wasn't actually a breach of Facebook's infrastructure, was it? The, the no. data, it was just
3: something somebody else had collected. Precisely. It's a data leak as opposed to a data breach, and which yeah. I think is a key point. So there, and there wasn't any, you know, hacking involved in order to gain access to this database. Okay. It was it was public-facing and accessible. And actually, uh, Jay Nankaro, who's the director for policy communications at Facebook, uh, stated that the database appeared to have been scraped. Um, so when it was scraped to... to, to prove that there's uh, data leakage Uh, scraped before they implemented some privacy changes back in 2018, um, which was around the ability, they prevented the ability to search for a user based upon their phone number. Um, So when I was actually reading this article, uh, I actually had a a sense of deja vu around what I was reading. All over again. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, The explanation for the deja vu was that this has happened to Facebook users personal data before Uh, and actually our very own Duck wrote an article back in April 2019 around some Facebook apps that had suffered data leaks as well Um, so specifically there was Cultura Collectiva which was a uh, Latin American social networking collective that spilled again a giant database of more than 500 million entries covering millions of users as well and the data included things like Facebook IDs likes friends information about Facebook activity basically there was also another app called At The Pool, which uh, was a Facebook app that died in 2014, but left its collected and orphaned data, basically uh, exposed out to the internet. And that included things like names, email addresses, Facebook IDs, and passwords. Now, those aren't Facebook passwords, but they're passwords for, for that app stored in plain text as well.
1: And, of course, you kind of wonder, well, with all this data out there, what, what could bad guys or bad people actually do with it? Mm. But then, of course... This is where the lists of email addresses that get used in spam campaigns mm-hmm. that start things like TrickBot, which then lead to Riot. So yeah. it's this affects you if you've been exactly compromised. Yeah.
3: This is it. Precisely they're used in, in brute force attempts. Credential stuffing, for example, whereby, you know, they've got your password and your email address for an account over there from a breached record, and then they can then try that same combination to see if you are recycling those passwords any, anywhere else as well.
2: And in in, in Things like sextortion or other email demands where crooks are saying, hey, we we know something about you because we hacked your account, mm. pay us money or we'll release it, uh, they often use the fact that they know your phone number mm. as an indication, as a suggestion or invite you to infer, well, if we know your phone number, we must have been able to hack into your phone and retrieve it because you didn't give it to us, yet we know it. Yes. So this is another way that you, although so it might not be a big deal, it's, uh, millions of phone numbers are kind of million times a tiny deal turns mm. into something important. Precisely that.
0: So, Ben, why do these data leaks keep happening?
3: Well, the cause is never 100% clear, uh, except, of course, for the organisation and or individual that was responsible for the leaked data. Uh, it's never 100% clear as to how the sensitive and personal data became exposed to the outside world. Having said that, we are seeing a growing number of reports of such data leaks caused by misconfiguration in public cloud storage. And an example of public cloud storage is uh, something called an S3 bucket, which is basically Amazon's name for a logical storage area that they host in their Amazon web services. Um, S3 is a name, by the way, the name comes from uh, the term simple storage service, which is where the three comes from, three S's. Um, And Rapid7 actually conducted some research and published a report entitled There's a Hole in 1951 Amazon S3 Buckets, in which they identified that one in six researched S3 buckets, were leaking sensitive d- data to the outside world, i.e. they had public read permission and were unencrypted and public facing. So this is because it's so easy to set up a server
2: that stores so much more data than you would ever, your IT team would ever have allowed you to do because they didn't have the disk space, that it's almost like could happen through what's called shadow IT, couldn't it? Where mm-hmm. someone goes, oh, IT won't give me 17 terabytes of storage, so I'll stick my own credit card number in. I'll get this temporary server with Amazon. Oh, look, it's working really well. Oof! And you copy a load of data there. You haven't done your homework properly, yep. and bingo. Then you forget about it. Then it's sitting there, and sooner or later somebody stumbles upon it. Precisely
3: that, that misconfiguration. It's
1: got to be the, the people doing this. I mean, no one puts this data on there thinking, I want to expose these phone numbers. Well, mm. hopefully they don't. Um, so it's got to be a lack of awareness of what can go wrong as well. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, hopefully people like you talking about these will remind admins or whoever it is that... Uh, you know, this data is important.
2: Well, it's almost your ransomware story with another hat on, isn't it? With a lot of ransomware attacks, RDP. Mm-hmm. The crooks find you've got an RDP port. They can wander in where they're not supposed to. Thanks for having me. But if, you know, I know we've got the sophos.com slash RDP research, great reading, but then uh, <laughs> uh, you guys also did some SSH research, which is a different port. Same idea, um, secure shell connections, mm-hmm. similar sort. Of, in fact, the first hit with the SSH honeypot research was less than a minute. It's actually broke the RDP record. And we've got some stuff you can find on nakedsecurity.softwells.com about exactly the same thing going on, thanks to what we found with our honeypots, with SQL servers. So that's not an. That's where you've got your own database server on your own network or on some hosted provider. And that's got a port that allows people in. So it's mm. not surprising if people are making mistakes with RDP, in. You, but an SSH, which let people into the heart of their network, and their own SQL servers where they know they're storing their data, it's not surprising that they make mistakes when they're using perhaps more informal storages out there in the cloud. Mm. And, of
1: course, it's in the cloud, so that's somebody else's job to protect it. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's the whole thing with
2: outsourcing, isn't it? Yeah. You can you can outsource the technology but not your responsibility.
3: Cue the shared responsibility model, um, I think. <laughs> and I guess
2: this shows also, you know, we go, well, what – is it really that bad that somebody's got this many phone numbers? You kind of think Facebook didn't provide an interface that allows you to say, please show me every phone number that's on your system. Mm -hmm. So somebody must have thought it was worthwhile to go programmatically through databases one at a time and collect this data in the first place. Mm -hmm. So if if you're doubting that telephone numbers do have a value to cyber crooks, well, somebody thought it had value and then now the crooks could, in theory, have wandered in. There's no evidence that anyone got at this before
3: this chap did, but, like, who knows, right? This is it, exactly. And and as I said at the beginning, it's never 100% clear, except, of course, the organisation or individual that that was responsible for the leaked data, or, of course, if it does fall into the wrong hands, the person whose hands it's fallen into, fundamentally. Um, And, yeah, I think you raise a really good point around it doesn't just happen to S3 buckets, uh, it happens to databases. For example, we, if we recall the story of uh, React apps uh, earlier this year, um, in which there was a misconfigured MongoDB it hosted in Azure, and that resulted in very sensitive information, such as current location tracking of uh, children, being exposed and publicly accessible. Of, for a similar cause as well, so we can link yeah, off right. to they the article. Were, they were
2: collecting data, and it was it
3: was meant to be for security, wasn't it? Exactly. And it's just
2: like the comedy of errors of webcams that you put in your in your warehouse to spot thieves, mm. and then they leak the data, so the crooks can actually use your security camera to find out when the security guards. <laughs> gone to the gents or something, or the ladies, and yep. they know the exact right time to come in. Precise. And this is the the same sort of problem. These numbers, they might have been collected innocently, probably mm-hmm. not because you're not supposed to scrape that much data from Facebook. And now not only were they collected by one person, they were then kind of leaked out to the world. But it, this wasn't things like 2FA phone numbers. It was It was phone numbers that people had chosen to upload to Facebook but were probably had made the reasonable assumption that that it, they weren't ever supposed to be available to anybody en masse. Mm-hmm. So although someone could find you by your number, it wasn't like somebody could ask Facebook, give me everybody's phone number in the world in one go. Somebody went and collected this for whatever reason. And, now, and then somebody else went and found what somebody else had collected. An injury to one is an injury to all kind of thing.
3: <laughs> exactly that. And particularly as, as we said, Facebook have actually discontinued the uh, usage for that data or rather the rationale behind that database being publicly accessible i.e. previously it was leveraged as a search engine for search engine purposes in order to locate Facebook profiles based upon their mobile phone number which now is no longer a feature so there was no rational cause for them to continue um, hosting that data uh, externally. In a, in I that guess fashion. It,
2: in in the modern era of, particularly with robocalls and tech support scams coming by phone and that, mm-hmm. I think people are very re- that people don't mind being in phone directories. If you think back to the old days when they were printed, but they're much more reluctant to be in reverse phone directories these days. Yes, exactly. Plus, it's, it's it's a bit creepy, isn't it? If a stalker can take a number yeah. and figure out who it is, yeah. So there's some like being able to go from your name to your phone number from somebody who knows you
3: is one thing, but being able to go the other way around is quite another. Exactly. I think it's clear that um, public cloud asset misconfiguration is directly causing a massive sensitive data to be uh, leaked and publicly accessible and leaked to the outside world. Basically,
2: so it's sort of like if you're not part of the solution, you really are part of the problem. Yeah, even though you're not a crook yourself. Exactly that. Yeah.
0: So I guess there's two parts to the advice that we're looking for here. What can users do, but also what can organisations do to prevent things like this?
3: It's a great question. So uh, as a consumer, a victim, a user, um, however you choose to put it, there is actually very little that can be done to stop your data from being leaked once you put it into the hands of a third-party organisation, basically. Um, with the obvious exception, of course, being to not provide them with your personal data to begin with. Um, Fortunately, with GDPR now being in enforcement, you can express your right to erasure and you can go through um, organisations that hold your, um, third parties that hold your personal information and request that they delete it as well. So you kind of sanitise the information that you have out there to reduce it down to that which is... Adequately necessary. to Of course, it if it is in this an Amazon age.
2: bucket that they've forgotten about, right.
0: <laughs> then they're going to forget to remove it. Is it, it from easy there. to check if you request, say, from Facebook, delete all of the personal information you have on me? Can I actually check that they've done that?
3: No, you not, not as far as I'm aware. Right. However, uh, you you just kind of have to take their word for it. But also bear in mind that with GDPR, I'd also brought in significant fines associated to breaches of GDPR compliance. So, i.e., if you ask them to remove your information, they didn't do it. To an acceptable degree under GDPR, and then there was a data breach or what have you, and you fall victim to a a data breach, having your data fall into the wrong hands as a result of them not deleting your data properly, then of course there will be fines associated to that significantly more than the former UKI Data Protection Act, for example, the fines associated to that. GDPR is significantly higher fines as well. So this puts more of a pressure onto these organisations to secure your data that they store on you to begin with but also as well adhere to the policies and the rules that are in place for GDPR as well.
0: Okay
3: great. Um, so that's kind of as a, from a consumer's view. There's also the view of as an organisation who holds information on users. For example you might be working for an organisation that, that, that retains personal information of your users, of your customers for example. And you certainly can of course take Measures to prevent misconfiguration of your cloud ac- of your public cloud assets, in order to prevent them from being publicly accessible, such as for example by implementing a public cloud security solution that gives you visibility, compliance, and remediation across all of your public cloud assets as well. Um, one core consideration. Uh, in the in the case of I think sort of one key takeaway here is that you know it happens to Facebook. Facebook obviously have a very large and complex footprint and and architecture and, and network um, or series of networks really in in public cloud for example. And complexity, as we know, is the enemy of security. And as we mentioned before, as per the shared responsibility model, which is published by Amazon for AWS and Microsoft for uh, Microsoft Azure, to say who's responsible for what. Um, Data classification and accountability is the responsibility of the public cloud service customer, i.e. if you host data in the public cloud services, it is your responsibility to classify and control that data to ensure that it doesn't, um, doesn't fall into the wrong hands uh, that That is your responsibility, basically.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Uh,
3: just one one final thing, just to, just to wrap up around the... Um, I mentioned that public cloud security platforms can assist organisations in achieving visibility, i.e. Um, protecting or rather adopting the protection strategy. If you can't see something, you can't secure it. If you don't know it's there, it's very difficult to secure. Right. So enforcing visibility and compliance and remediation over your public cloud assets is integral towards securing against these or protecting against these types of data leaks and actually we have a solution called Sophos Cloud Optics That provides exactly this. So do check it out uh, If you're in that situation and you want to ensure security in your public cloud environment
0: Perfect excellent advice um, Thank you. So moving on to you Dirk um, You're talking about uh, Firefox's move towards DNS over HTTPS So why is there any controversy over this? Surely this is just a brilliant move for privacy
2: Well Yes, this has become a bit of a sort of issue of concern to some people in the media. It's become maybe a bigger story than it needs to be. But it is quite interesting that DNS, the domain name system, that's the global distributed database that when you type in, say, nakedsecurity.softhost.com, that request goes out onto the internet, basically unencrypted. Not what your traffic is with us, but hey, this guy's interested in naked security.softs.com, and somebody comes back saying, here's the IP number, the actual computer-friendly number where to find it. Then you connect to that server. Then you do, say you're doing web browsing. Then these days you're supposed to use HTTPS, which is secure HTTP, so that what you actually browse is encrypted and secure and can't be tampered with. All a good thing. So the idea is, well, isn't it a little bit anti-privacy if the, what you're actually communicating and corresponding, your, your, your traffic to and from naked security is secure, but the fact that you went there in the first place, there's some kind of suggestion that you did it. It's like getting... If I I might not listen into your phone calls, but if I get a list of all the people you called in the month, maybe that's right. super useful. Yes. So why, if we're doing HTTP, the web traffic over HTTPS from our browser, why doesn't the browser just do your DNS requests over HTTPS as well? Problem solved, and it's sort of problem solved, except there are a whole load of other issues, namely that there aren't that many. Sp- People in the world these days who are actually offering DNS over HTTPS services. So People may have DNS kind of without realising it. You need this interface to to the giant database of servers in the world. For most people, it either comes from your router or the router at the coffee shop that you've connected to. It does it for you or your ISP does it for you. Or maybe you connect to Google's server, 8888. I think IBM have one, 9999, et cetera, et cetera. So lots of people know that this is going on and they don't worry too much about it. But the problem is there's – well. the good thing is there's a lot of choice. Every time you go to a new coffee shop, you'll probably have a different DNS server. So even if people are logging that stuff, there's a kind of divide-and-conquer idea. And the objection to Firefox having DNS over HTTPS by default is at the moment, when they turn it on, there'll be a default provider, which I think is a, comp- a, a huge uh, internet traffic provider called Cloudflare. I think that's the default – so that's the objection they're saying, well, Mozilla's all into privacy. We're going to secure our DNS requests so people, they can't see what we're saying and we, they can't easily see who we're saying it to, we can't get a record of that. But yet, all those DNS requests in the end, when they're decrypted so they can actually be answered, there's like kind of one of two companies in the world are going to get all this data and maybe it's too much too soon. That's one of the counter arguments to say it's all very well to do the security, but it means that instead of saying, well, I'm not sure whether I trust my ISP, who for most people may be a local company they've chosen because they do trust them. It's no longer about that. I have to trust this great international global massive company that's now going to get not just my dns browsing history but load millions of other people in the world maybe it's going to become you know like the facebook phone numbers dns requests you know oh i looked up example.com today but the day before i looked up example.org maybe that's not a big deal one by one but maybe in as a huge collection of data maybe as i said it's it's kind of putting too many eggs in one basket
0: so when mozilla announced that they were gonna turn this on by default which it was already in the system but not on by default a lot of british service providers were kind of annoyed about this why was that
2: some isps were up in arms or some uh, public services some government bodies in some countries were up in arms is that in many countries DNS filtering, where you actually, you see which servers people appear to be interested in, is actually used as a means of kind of internet security on its own. Now, it's also used as a vehicle that, my understanding is that in the UK, ISPs actually have to keep DNS logs for some considerable time. I personally, I just absolutely don't agree with this. It's just a giant bucket of data waiting for a problem to happen. But the government's theory is, well, in an emergency, if we suddenly decide, oh, well, you might be a terrorist after all, you might have done a crime, we can at least go back and look in March 2017. Look, you were. it does seem that you were spending time on these sites. So the government's argument is it's better than doing full-on surveillance of everybody if every now and then they can go back and look to see if they have a probable cause that you were going where perhaps you shouldn't have.
0: And would there be a certain time frame that they keep this data for on people?
2: Uh, Well, that that would depend by country. But typically when ISPs are asked to keep data, it's like you being asked to keep your tax records. It's going to be years rather than weeks. Now, I don't agree with collecting that data, not because I don't think crooks should be busted, but because I just think that collecting such huge amounts of data and then saying to people like ISPs, you have a duty to take all of this stuff which you collected on encrypted and stick it in a cupboard under the stairs. Experience suggests that cupboards tend to burst open and Ben just told a fascinating story about exactly how that kind of thing happens. However the argument was that if I, if Mozilla turned this feature on in Firefox for everybody's using it then at least one avenue that they're currently relying upon to assist in law enforcement investigations will suddenly stop working and so i get the government's point of saying you know if we just if we just keep track of who you phoned rather than listening into all your phone calls, that's better than having mass surveillance of everyone, and this data could be useful, and it has been useful in the past. So now we're not going to have access to this data anymore. And the counter-argument to that is, well, really sorry, you kind of have to find another way that steers this path between total surveillance society and actually knowing an awful lot about me because better not to collect the data and then that leads to the counter argument that and i get this point from someone like the the uk public service the british government saying well if you're not letting our isps collected and people get to choose which isp they're using you're still letting somebody else connect collected it. it might be a Cloudflare or a google or an ibm or somebody like that there are these even bigger providers who are now getting this data anyway are you expecting that we're going to have to go and ask them for this data in the future and what if they're in a jurisdiction where they either don't have to keep it or they decide not to keep it and so on and so on so it did open up this can of worms about how to do what you might call surveillance light.
1: Arguably that makes it easier for law enforcement though because they've only got a few companies they now need to approach you know for CIA or whoever now they just go to cloud. That that's another
2: counter-argument to the counter-argument yeah. to the counter-argument, if you like. <laughs> and by the way, this is an issue that some people have, as I said earlier, with, with turning this feature on by default for everybody, is that if you just do nothing, essentially... You're operating, because Firefox operate, you know, it's designed to be operating system independent, your computer will probably still be using your ISP's DNS server, your browser will not. Your computer will still be going, say, through your company's DNS server, where there might be some useful filtering going on. But when you browse, suddenly it'll all be different. So, you know, it's introducing complexity where it's not needed, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the good news for people who have enterprise users of Firefox using their, you know, their enterprise Uh, version is and this is in the consumer version it's quite hard to set up you can tell it by the way for the following domains i don't want you i want you to use conventional dns so if you want you or you can just say turn this feature off altogether so don't use it at all um but amazingly there is another this is perhaps my greatest concern with it is that my understanding is that in a fit of worry about performance and availability by mozilla that if they turn this feature on for everybody absolutely, and somehow you're in a place that, say, doesn't allow access to Cloudflare or Quad 9999 or whichever provider you provide, because now all your DNS traffic is going via HTTP to a particular server, is that if it stops working because of an outage, that would basically break your browsing completely because no DNS anymore. So if it stops working, the secure feature, my understanding is the default is it will transparently and quietly fall back to doing it the old school way. And my concern about this is this means that, all the coffee shops that you've used in the past that you trusted nicely because you didn't think they were doing anything rogue with your dns data they won't get to see your dns data anymore even though you would have trusted them with it but coffee shops that deliberately stop your dns over https working on purpose will suddenly get access to something that you thought you were shielding from them so, in- so there is this problem that by by they they're doing security but in this kind of in the least dramatic way so in a way <laughs>
1: the only people that will be able to access your data are the ones you don't want. Yes, and,
2: and unfortunately, at the moment at least in Firefox, you can turn this on and off or change the DNS over HTTPS service provider you want to use from the regular menu. But if you want to set it so that we will then only use DNS over HTTPS and fail if it's not available or never use it at all, you have to go in, be daring and go into uh firefox's about colon config menu put that in the address bar you get a dire warning and then zillions of options and you can go in and fiddle it but i'm not going to say how to do it i'll leave you to look that up because it is not an exercise to be entered into lightly <laughs> having said that it's network.tr.moan <laughs> <dot laughs> <mode. laughs>
0: okay so is uh, what other advice would you give to people about this
2: It's probably a little bit of a storm in the teacup for the average consumer who's already decided I'm going to pick Firefox, which I would describe as a significant minority browser. It has a significant market share, but it's well below half. So I think the people who are choosing to use Firefox are doing so because they kind of want to be, they want to use a mainstream browser, but they don't want to use, they don't want to trust Microsoft with their browsing habits or Google with their browsing habits or Apple with their browsing habits. So they're going for what they consider the least worst. And to be honest, if you are out and about, if you are using lots of different coffee shops, you probably are better, in my opinion, using DNS over HTTPS because it just means that the people around you can't just... Blindly collect a list of absolutely yeah. everywhere that you've expressed any interest in. And by the way, the other problem with sniffing out wh- wh- what someone's DNS habits are is you can easily get false information that leads you to make incorrect inferences. Because right. if I think, if I go to a legit site, but the site's compromised, and it includes, say, images that just happen to come from dodgy sites. Even if my browser subsequently blocks those dodgy sites or my Sophos home web filtering blocks those dodgy websites, they still show up as sites that were allegedly of interest to me. They weren't of interest to me. They were somehow of interest to my computer because they were listed in a web page. So that's the other reason that DNS over HTTPS, it just kind of – that there is a good reason in security for putting all your eggs in one basket is then – as we're talking about retiring data through GDPR, you don't have a million different right. baskets to worry Absolutely. about later. So that, that's that's my feeling. I've got it turned on. And by the way, I've also got it turned on so that if it fails, my browsing stops working. It's mm. comparatively rare that I have problems. Yeah. And it usually means that I'm on a network that has very poor connectivity anyway. And, you know, uh, my Tor browser will stop working because it's too slow. and right. well, then would you just switch to Chrome? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I'd pull out my mobile phone and turn on the personal hotspot and use that and pay the data charges for a bit.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. So we're going to finish with a couple of questions, if that's okay. Um. So, Duck, this one is for you. Um, Uh-oh. Uh, this one came via Instagram and it just asks, what is at the core of AI detections?
2: Oh, you mean like what's the actual technology ha- – What? What's the? what's the – The magic security source right in the middle of it, I guess, is what that question means. I hope I'm going to put this simply and rightly enough. Um, Our data scientists at Sophos can correct me if I'm wrong. Very loosely speaking, the idea of AI or machine learning, it's a kind of statistical inferencing. So what you do is you build a statistical model that basically takes something you've never seen before and uses statistical methods to estimate the probability generally speaking that it is an x or it is not x and to do that what you need to do is you need to firstly build up a set of characteristics that you think are actually genuinely useful for discriminating x's and non-x's and then you need to build a representative sample of x's and non-x's that you can use to build up the statistical model so it can get the right probabilities for deciding, yes it is, no it isn't. So it's kind of a way of, instead of having a human go, let me go through a, a series of rules, like you might if you're writing a law and you want to get it passed by Parliament, you put down all the details. What you're trying to do is you're trying to make a best guess, a best inference about something that you've never seen before to decide probably which of two categories or more does it fall into. And it is superbly, superbly useful somewhere like... for something like Sophos Labs where we're getting what is it 400 450,000 new malware samples a day it took 10 years to get the first 10,000 malware samples oh my gosh. and now we're getting 450,000 yeah. minor variants a day wow. how do you decide which are the three really really exciting interesting and important ones yeah. that a the super smart guy should look at in the labs and just say to the others yeah we can kind of we're pretty darn sure what these are without spending a lot of time on and so you're using a statistical model to make that estimation as rapidly as you can. That was not a very quick answer, nor no, a very short answer. Was, I hope it was accurate as yes. well. <laughs> I don't know if it was accurate. Apart from
0: that, perfect. <laughs> cool. Well, I have one other question which we can all answer, and I feel like I might actually know the answer to this one. Uh, this also came via Instagram, and they ask, what is the best cybersecurity company in the industry to work for?
2: First characteristic and I'm going to try and be really objective here, should be blue. Yeah, they need Mm -hmm. to be... That's a very important part of security. At least two S's in the name. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. At least two O's in the name. We should... And should actually be Sophos. Yeah. <laughs> you can put anything you like after it. So it could be Sophos CryptoGuards, Sophos Intercept X, Sophos Cloud Optics, Sophos Home, Sophos Home Premium. You, you can pick what you like as long as the first word
0: is <laughs> Sophos. Yeah, yeah we,
1: that's we should, what I reckon. We should caveat of that saying we might be a bit
3: biased, I'm afraid. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, you jolly well hope so.
0: Okay, so just before we finish, where can we find you guys on social media?
3: You can find me at Ben Crypting on Twitter. See what you did there. Oh, me now. Uh, at Duck Blog on Twitter,
2: at P Ducklin on
1: Instagram. Uh, it is at Alt Shift Print Screen on Twitter, and I'm not on Instagram, I'm afraid.
0: Okay, I'm at Ali Rouge on Instagram and Twitter, although I'm private on Instagram and I probably won't accept you, but you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> um, and we're at Naked Security everywhere else, so do find us. We do weekly Facebook Live videos that you can join in on. And thank you for listening. Until next time, stay, stay secure. secure.